Max Melitzer's down roll, downward spiral led him to homelessness. In 1990, he had lost control of his car on a deserted Wyoming highway. His passengers included his wife and two of his best friends. And Max would be the only one in the car to make it out alive. He was so disoriented and so devastated by the car accident and the loss of those he loved that soon he found himself unable to function. Unable to function emotionally, unable to function psychologically, unable to function financially. He lost his apartment and he ended up wandering the streets of Salt Lake City, Utah, And with him going from place to place on the streets, sleeping outdoors, with no fixed address, it was very difficult for Max's family to locate him. And so when his brother passed away, and Max was to be the sole heir to his brother's estate, the family desperately began anew to try to locate Max. His cousin Richard spent about a year trying to track him down, was not able to find him, eventually had to hire a private investigator to try to determine the whereabouts of Max. Finally, June 17, 2011, investigator David Lundberg found Max pushing a shopping cart in Pioneer Park in Salt Lake City, Utah. Sat him down on a bench there in the park and informed him first that his brother had passed away, second that he would be inheriting a good deal of money, over six figures. Cousin Richard was relieved and commented to a newspaper, the windfall is not a fortune, but it will feel like a million dollars to him. I'm tickled pink. Now I don't have to worry about finding him anymore. So his family found him. Max inherited a good deal of money, and his story was the story of a homeless man who got a fresh start. Now, what would become of him? What would he do with this inheritance? Well, we'll get there later, but I want to share with you first a story from the Old Testament that sounds in many ways quite similar to the story of Max Melitzer. It is a story of a man named Mephibosheth. As a child, the future could not have been brighter for Mephibosheth. His father, Jonathan, was a prince of Israel. His grandfather, Saul, was the very first and currently reigning king over Israel. Obviously, his family was wealthy. He was in line to one day be king of Israel. The future was so bright for Mephibosheth. But as quickly as things turned on that Wyoming highway for Max, they turned for Mephibosheth, really in one day. Because one day, his grandfather Saul was leading the army of Israel in a battle against their cruel enemy, the neighboring Philistines. And Jonathan, his father, and two of Jonathan's brother, his uncles of Mephibosheth, they were killed by the sword. His grandfather Saul was mortally wounded by an archer's arrow and chose to take his own life on Mount Gilboa instead of falling into the hands of the enemy. Mephibosheth was only five years old 
when he found out his dad was dead and his grandpa was dead and his uncles were dead. Fearing that the Philistines would continue their attack, press their advantage, and destroy the rest of the royal family of Israel, the remnants of Saul's household fled in great haste. And in their escape, another blow was dealt to this child's future. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. I'll be reading from the message. It so happened that Saul's son Jonathan had a son. This is Mephibosheth had a son who had been maimed in both feet. When he was five years old, the report on Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and ran, but in her hurry to get away, she fell and the boy was maimed. His name was Mephibosheth. So Max and Mephibosheth understood personally that there are these turning point moments in life when everything can begin begin falling out of control so quickly. And just think about this. That day, when the sun came up, he was a young, healthy, wealthy prince of Israel with a loving family. And on that day when the sun went down, he was a permanently disabled orphan living in poverty. That's quite a day. That's quite a day. And we don't know exactly how he became crippled. I mean, the Bible says that his nurse fell. That's quite a fall, right? I mean, maybe she fell and he fell under an ox cart that rolled over his feet. We don't know. But what we know is his feet were so badly injured that he would not walk again. And so King's King Saul's death meant that a new family would ascend to the throne of Israel. Mephibosheth's family was out of power, had left all of their land and most of their holdings, and King David began his reign. And so the family of Saul was not only afraid of the Philistines, but also afraid of the new kid on the block, of David, and what he might do to try to solidify his reign, perhaps choosing to eliminate the outgoing regime. And so Saul's family fled to a remote outpost called Lodabar. Lodabar, translated into English, I think is best translated as Midland Odessa, all right? It is called, really it's translated as the place of no pasture. Midland Odessa has oil, woo, yeah. Lodabar simply had dirt and rocks, all right? Dirt and rocks, very little else in this village. And so Mephibosheth's family took up residence there, experiencing a complete reversal of fortune. Now, David, we know David a little bit better. We have hindsight of history and knowing all of the stories of his life. David was a generous man. David was a good man, had his faults. But David, when he took power, was much more interested in protecting and prospering the nation of Israel than he was in seeking revenge against anybody. And so with the nation under his care, his number one objective was not to go after Saul's family, but was to, was to protect and bring peace to the nation of Israel. And he was, was blessed on the battlefield when it came to this. 2 Samuel 8 verse 6 says, The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Victory over Philistines, 
Victory over Moabites, victory over Edomites, victory over Arameans, every other nation who stood up against Israel was defeated on the battlefield. And 2 Samuel 7 verse 1 says, the king, so years later after these wars, the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. And then we're left to ask, so what happened to Mephibosheth? What became of the prince turned pauper? Something big was about to happen. Because once David had achieved stability and peace, he remembered his best friend. His best friend had been Jonathan, the one killed in battle against the Philistines. That was his best friend. He remembered him and he thought, is there anyone left in Jonathan's household, in his family, that I can honor Jonathan's memory by caring for them, by blessing them? Nobody seemed to know anything about Saul's family, about Jonathan's family. Lodabar was pretty much off the radar And so he searched and searched, found no information, finally found a sort of private investigator, let's say um, a sort of private investigator Lundberg. This guy's name was Ziba, and he had at one time been employed by the household of Saul. And he said, yes, I believe there is a survivor. I believe there is somebody left. He's a handicapped, well, back in the day he was a boy. Now he must be grown but handicapped in both of his feet. And so David sent his people, his emissaries, to go off into the middle of nowhere and bring this boy back to the capital city. Now, Mephibosheth, when this group arrived, had to be thinking, you know, what are they here for? Are they going to punish me for the sins of Saul? They were many. Are they going to take me out just to clear, clean the slate and make sure that nobody is a rival for the throne of Israel? Why are they here? But he really had little say in the matter as he couldn't run away. And so David's men simply carted him off, carried him off to Jerusalem. And seeing David, Mephibosheth would have remembered how deeply his father loved this man. Mephibosheth might even recall some stories of the teenage exploits of David and Jonathan. I don't know, but he would have remembered David and the past that his father and David had together. He would have remembered how David, even though he was anointed king, refused for years to assume the throne out of deference to Mephibosheth's grandfather, King Saul. Only after Saul's death would David assume the throne. So let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel 9, verses 6 to 8. 2 Samuel 9, 6 to 8. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father. Jonathan, I will give you all of the property that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. 
Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who am I? Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Surely David in this encounter saw something of Jonathan, maybe in his eyes, maybe in his mannerisms, maybe in the the tone of his voice, saw something of his dearly departed friend. In humility, Mephibosheth marveled at the gifts that were showered on him by the new king. What have I done to deserve this, the royal treatment? The answer, of course, is nothing. You did nothing to deserve this. All of this that you are receiving, a seat at the king's table in perpetuity, holdings and lands that belong to your grandfather, it's all because of your relationship to one I love, to Jonathan, your father. So one moment, Mephibosheth living in poverty in the wasteland of Lodabar. The next moment, he is once again a member for all practical purposes of the royal household. So 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 11 has this beautiful statement. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. Now, and I'm imagining, I don't know how your family reunions go, but when I was five years old, I didn't eat at the big table. You know what I'm saying? I was at the card table. Anybody, anyone else remember the card table? You're at the card table off in the other room. This is a promotion, right? I mean, he had eaten at the grandchildren's table. Now he's eating at the king's table, like one of the king's sons. And now instead of worrying, where is my next meal coming from? He's wondering, what will I order off the menu at Three Forks, right? What will I order off the menu in the palace? Instead of living in exile off of the charity of others, he is now independently wealthy and is the master of great estates and holdings. And Ziba and his household, at least for some time, would work for him. And maybe the most striking thing about all of this that David did is the, is the very personal nature of the story. I mean, he didn't just give Mephibosheth a fortune. He gave him a friendship. He invited him, in essence, to get to know him, eat at my table, sit by my side for the rest of your life. That's what David wanted. Now, as you work through a Bible story and you see a name, especially a name like this one, I mean, this is a, this is a big name, right? Mephibosheth. It's, you see a name like that, you have to wonder, what does that mean? Surely it means something. Sure, surely all of those letters put together mean something. And in the Bible, names mean things. And the Bible, oftentimes, a name may appear strange or even silly until late in the story, and then it all comes together. And that name turns out to have been, shall we say, prophetic. Abraham, or Abram, when he was childless and elderly with his wife, Sarai. Abram means exalted father. Where are the kids for this exalted father? And before the son of promise, Isaac, is born, Abraham's name is changed to, or Abram's name is changed to Abraham, father of many. 
I don't have any kids. Well, I've got Ishmael over there by my wife's maidservant. Sounded kind of strange until finally the prophecies began to be fulfilled. And Mephibosheth's story is the same way. Mephibosheth's name means breaker of shame. Mephibosheth, the breaker of shame. Now that name would have sounded like a cruel joke when his family is forced out of power and is living on the charity of others off in the middle of nowhere. That name would have seemed absurd when he grew up and experienced young adulthood as a man who could only move from point A to point B by being physically carried. But late in the story, when he was given back all of the holdings of his grandfather, when he was seated at the banquet table of the king, then finally, he had grown into the strong name he had been given, the breaker of shame. So Mephibosheth's story is is the underdog story, not because he calls himself a dead dog, but it is the underdog story because it is a story of grace and redemption. It is a story of coming back from having nothing, and it is a story that means something to me, should mean something to us, because it is our story. It is our story. You see, in the gospel, God longs to make the powerful death burial and resurrection of Jesus, our story, your story. It is the rags to riches epic that the Father invites for you to wear. You and I were spiritual drifters. Because of our sinfulness, we had left the home of the Father. We had traveled very far to wander in the wastelands of Lodabar, And then a good and noble king, through love and sacrifice, restored us, brought us back to the king's table, invited us to feast by his side, restored us, gave us a fresh start. And if you have worn the story of the gospel, that's your story. That's your story. Paul in the letter he wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, reminded them of their story. The before and the after. The rags and the riches. He says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's the ugly, hideous before picture. You were dead, you were transgressors, you were enemies of God, you were living in the wasteland just like us, right? I mean, just like us. We too have lived in sin and disgrace. And then like us, the Ephesians had seen the gospel break their shame. Verse 2 or rather verse 4 to 10, verses 4 to 10. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. 
in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so because of Christ Jesus, God has poured heavenly riches over you. Salvation, grace, his kindness, a new future. Mephibosheth received a fortune from David. Remember? Not based on his merit. Not based on his conduct. Not based on even his right. But Mephibosheth had received a fortune from David based on his relationship to Jonathan. And you have received a fortune from God the Father not based on anything you have done, but solely based on your relationship by faith to Christ Jesus, the Son of the King. Put on that story. Put on that story and wear it well. Now, here's the thing. God doesn't force anyone to wear the story. He doesn't force anyone to accept the invitation to his table. That is entirely your choice. He has done everything he possibly can. I mean, look at the cross. He has done everything he possibly can. Now he invites you to allow Jesus to break your shame and to cover you with grace and mercy. So which story will you choose to live? The story of sin and disgrace. The story of separation from God. Or the story of the gospel, the one he has written for you. What happened to Max? What did did he do with that fortune? How did he invest that? How did it change his life? I think the next chapter of Max's story is, is perhaps best summarized by simply reading to you some of the newspaper and, and internet headlines that followed as the story progressed. In the beginning, the headlines went like this one from Huffington Post. Homeless man Max Melitzer learns he's rich. Or this one, homeless man found, told he's rich. MSNBC put this one on. He's homeless and he's rich. (laughs) And then just about a week later, the headlines began to change. A week later, MSNBC ran this story. Homeless man, a no-show to pick up inheritance. Times Union proclaimed about Max that he had, quote, vanished into thin air. Why would somebody offer a fortune, decline to pick it up? Why would a homeless man squander an opportunity to get off the streets, live in comfort, and be restored to his family? Why? Some would say he's just crazy. Others would more 
delicately say, I believe him to be mentally ill. Or perhaps it was just that he was more comfortable in his old life, pushing a shopping cart around parks in Salt Lake City, wearing stinky rags. Who knows? Here's what we know. There are chapters of your story that God wants to unlock. The gospel is the underdog story. It is the rags to riches story that the father is inviting you to wear. And so, will your story be the one of the person who inherited a fortune and never showed up to claim it? Or will your story be the story of the breaker of shame, the one who put all of those riches of the gospel on and wore them? Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, talks about baptism. And it says that it's at that moment of baptism that you were clothed with Christ. It's at that moment of baptism that you took off the filthy rags of the past and you put on Jesus, 